On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, I start my series on interviewing highly sensitive people. I like to welcome John Camps onto the show. He's someone I've known for a long time, and he definitely qualifies as somebody who is both an empath and a very highly sensitive person. And he's going to talk about his journey to coming to terms with being a highly sensitive person. Hope you enjoy the show. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now with Dr. Dana Saperstein. On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, I have the great pleasure of interviewing John Camps. I've known John for a long time, and he is a man who is extremely sensitive and empathic. And he has a very interesting uh, history and story about what he's been through in the course of his life and how he has come to terms with being really sensitive and learning how to thrive with that as one of the main characteristics of him as a person. So welcome, John. I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Dana. Uh, if you don't mind, just give us a description of who John Camps is and where you come from, and, and we'll go from there. Well, I'm already feeling a lot of pressure to be interesting. <laughs> well, we'll do the best we can. <laughs> I already know you're interesting, so I'm not worried about that. <laughs> yes, I'm 58 years old. I originally came from Wisconsin and uh, moved to California right after college. Um, I've been working as a screenwriter pretty much since then, of course, with stops and starts along the way. And um, I was married for 20 years and have three beautiful boys, who are, you know, men now, um, and uh, found myself here. So tell us about what it was like to grow up in, uh, in Wisconsin. Gosh, it's such a different planet from here, um, especially given the amount of time that's passed. But I grew up in a very uh, rural area with parents who weren't particularly rural. My parents were both pretty well educated. So we always felt a little out of place, or at least I felt out of place, but didn't quite know why specifically. But I don't know if it's the nature of my consciousness, but I always felt a little bit like I was on a separate planet from the, the people surrounding me. And I think this goes right to the core of sensitivity when you have a fundamental gap between how you react to and view the world and how the majority of people around you do so. There was a lot of great things about growing up in Wisconsin. There's a lot of time in the playing in the woods and being on bicycles and all kinds of freedom because parents didn't really care about what you were up to back then. So you got to do whatever you wanted. But there was a lot of long, dark, heavy, cold winters, which lead you to sort of a contemplative place if you're of that nature. That feeling of being out of place is such a common thing that people that are really sensitive feel. And oftentimes, um, it's not met with acceptance. It's met with, like, what's wrong with me? Um, did you have that sort of a feeling, like, because you were different than most of the people around you, that there was something wrong with you? 
Yeah, I think there's that fundamental feeling that you're not right and that you have to change. I remember my mother saying to me once, um, why do you take yourself so seriously? And it kind of broke my heart to hear that Yeah, as a sensitive person. I was like, well, who else is going to take me seriously if I don't? <laughs> right. But I imagine that maybe I was really exhausting from her perspective. You because know. you noticed everything around you so acutely and... Because well, I did take myself so seriously. Yeah, of I, course. I could see... <laughs> I could see, yeah, leveling that same criticism at someone else. But when you're only seeing through your own lens, it's hard to accurately think about what you were really presenting. Do you think that um, the pain in your family was something that you were aware of at very early on in your life? No, not at all. Because it's all you know. So there's nothing really to compare it to. And people okay. weren't very psychologically articulate. In your family or in the community? Or I both? think both. Yeah. I think that just wasn't the zeitgeist of like having a personal day. <laughs> I, I know that uh, because I know you well I know you've suffered some pretty difficult moments are you comfortable talking about some of what happened sure. as a kid yeah. yeah I mean I think it's a very interesting and ever-shifting perspective my mother I'm pretty certain had borderline personality disorder and some significant issues with alcohol so she was physically and emotionally abusive and would fly in to rages. So there was a lot of fear of her moods, um, both physically and psychologically. We had kind of a rating scale amongst my siblings and I about how bitchy she was that day. But it was beyond bitchy. It was just like really frightening. But I also wonder the combination of that and being a very sensitive Person. You know, it wasn't like a historic level of child abuse. I mean, so many kids go through the similar kind of thing, but I think my reaction to it was outsized as well. So it was like doubly poignant. And uh, do you remember being scared of your mom when you were a little kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what kinds of things did she do to you that kind of cemented that fear in place? Well, there were. They were like the ordinary spankings at the time, but it was also spankings like with, you know, implements. Like they had a leather strap they used a lot. Um, but then there were just like flip out and hit you kind of rages too that she just wasn't under control with. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, how did you guys, you, you have, uh, tell me how many siblings again? I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. And... Um, there was a time when I think my mom's issues were most acute. We had moved to the country, and she lost her whole support system, and we didn't have any money, so she was under a lot of strain as well. So that made my early life and my older sister's early life especially kind of, we sort of got the the main thrust of the crazy. And, and your dad didn't protect you from your mom? He was uh, a sweet man and somehow an occasional participant and often just just didn't see it so he 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 didn't do you think he didn't notice or i think part of him didn't notice and part, you know part of it must have been head in the sand but part of it was just he just 
if I'm like overly tuned in to people, he's got the opposite muscle, which I think protected him and us in a way because it kept him around. Oh, okay. I don't think anyone with an acute level of sensitivity could have survived. You mean as a, as a partner to your mom? Yeah. And how do you think he coped? But also his being checked out and being sort of rational would increase her rages because oh, okay. it was like oil and water. Right. They fought a lot. Well, especially with somebody with borderline personality disorder, the kind of devotion that that person requires is fairly significant. And when you don't provide it, the kind of rage that comes up is really scary. Yeah. And he wasn't a good financial provider. Either. Oh, okay. Yeah. What do you do for a living? He's a lawyer. Okay. But kind of a reluctant lawyer, small town, just whatever oh, came. Okay. He just wanted to play cards with his friends and <laughs> go fishing and tell jokes. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so in the course of growing up, other things that you think are important that took place that uh, have shaped you as a person? Wow, so many. It's just It just seems so global and environmental. It's hard to just shake a stick at one thing. Predilection towards depression is... It, it, within you as a person? Yeah. And how old were you when you started to notice depression as part of who you were? That was fairly early. I remember having like... I remember very specifically when I was in fifth grade, they were sort of like... Because I was so checked out at school. And they were... Um, wondering what was wrong with me and they thought maybe i needed a snack in the middle of the day that that would so they thought you had low blood sugar something yeah yeah some whatever was causing my lack of attention do, do you remember feeling kind of uh, preoccupied or checked out as a kid well that's a sensitive thing you're so into people and what's going on with other people that you're just not interested at all in school oh okay it's pretty hard yeah you don't you know you're interested in what the cute girl thinks of you, not the basic math assignment <laughs> phonics in front of you. I can could, I could appreciate that. <laughs> so going into junior high and high school, how, how, did you, how did you manage those years? Things started, I was, I was fat as a kid, so I got a lot of ridicule from my peers about that because, you know, there wasn't uh, many anti-bullying seminars back then. So do you think that you use food as a source of comfort? Sure, yeah. And how early in your life did that start? Um, very early. And what kinds of food were your, uh, like your choices for comfort? Uh, whatever was around. <laughs> I think there was a real, my mother was always in a panic that we weren't going to have enough money for food. Oh. So I think some of it was scarcity, scarcity motivated. Like, I better load up now because this <laughs> might not be around forever. <laughs> okay. So again, it sounds like you were sensitive to her anxiety and her discomfort. Yeah, I yeah. always became sort of her confidant, the one who would, like, carry her shit. Right. Well, and again, that's a really important concept to bring up because um, usually the most sensitive kid in the family starts to manage pain pretty early. Mm. Because um, your safety depends on the people around you, their ability to kind of function. And it sounds like your mom was pretty erratic to begin with. And uh, being a sensitive person, your job would be to make sure that she's okay at all costs because, um, you know, the, the, what the consequences you and your siblings suffered when she lost it were pretty extreme. Yeah, I think it, it was like, I think being sensitive 
gives you an outsized sense of fear as well, especially when you couple it with an active imagination. Because imagination is such a double-edged sword. It can be used to imagine the worst things as well. Is that, is that part of what, where your imagination took you as a kid? Yeah, I think that, like, if someone's in a rage, they're not just in a rage, you think that that could lead to them killing you or something. Oh, okay, yeah. So managing someone's moods in that context becomes a survival tool. Sure. And were you ever successful? Well, I mean, I know she didn't kill you, but were you ever successful at, at uh, helping her stay in relative control? No. No, that's, I think that's where the borderline comes in. It's uncontrollable. Right. It can't be reasoned with. It's just, when that engine's running, it's, it's under its own power. <laughs> well, and do you remember what that felt like? Because you wouldn't have been able to necessarily understand uh, about having a personality disorder when you were a young person um you would be more busy responding to it rather than understanding where it's coming from so how'd you cope well thank god i had siblings yeah because that could sort of ground you you know because i can't imagine if you were alone with a person like that and you had no outside context that would be really tough but if you have a sibling and you're like wow she's really something today oh okay so you guys would kind of make fun of her that sort of thing at least acknowledge that it wasn't, yeah. it was off. And how'd you got, like when she really lost it, did you try to run away from her or did, or was there no escaping? Her? Oh yeah. I think, yeah. You just try to avoid her. Right. And uh, did you guys ever say anything to your dad or was it just not part of? No, no, that would never cross your mind somehow. Okay. So, so you go through. And he was at, you know, he was he wasn't there, you know, he was at work. Oh, Okay. So she was a primary caretaker, obviously, of yeah, of her children. Life got better once she got a full-time job. Oh, okay. How old were you when, when she went to work? She, had, she was a substitute teacher, but she went to work full-time when I was probably around eight years old. Oh, So okay. teachers were treated well in Wisconsin, and there, were, there was health care and pensions and so suddenly we were middle class, you know, with two oh, okay. incomes. So her getting a job really uh, helped in the financial concern in the family. And I think helped her mentally too. Yeah. Because now she had some control over her own destiny. And and did the abuse continue all the way through junior high and high school? No. So when did she stop uh, using violence? When I scowled at her. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, like some people I know actually put their parents on notice at a certain point, like I'm bigger than you or I'm, I'm big, you know, big enough. If you do that again, I'm going to, you know, hit you back or whatever. Yeah. It was just when I didn't cry. Oh, okay. And I just looked at her like enough, you know. Like, and do you remember how old you were when that happened? I think 10 sticks in my head. Okay. You know, it just, okay. it just seemed like enough of this. So the first decade of life was pretty, uh, pretty violent. But after that, at least the violence settled down a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. Then, then life got really good. Okay. Yeah. So in junior high and high school, uh, were you able to lose weight at all? And yeah, I, I, I got active and um, got into sports, and um, boy, life just turned a corner. Uh, in in what regard? Well, suddenly I was popular and well liked and doing good at sports and. 
your coaches were your teachers, so they'd float you by with passing grades just to keep oh, you on the okay. team. <laughs> so you could stare out the window and still get an okay grade yeah. in the class. <laughs> do you, do you think that the preoccupation, sort of the that being in your own world, continued through junior high and high school? Not as much. I had good friends and a lot of fun, and yeah, yeah. I didn't feel like an oddball with my peers at all. At and that. did substances become a part of your life at that point? Well, it was part of the whole culture, too. Yeah. I mean, drinking was basically encouraged in in the culture where I grew up. So there were always people to... But yeah, I remember the first... Um, I started drinking pretty regularly around... Well, I, I don't know what regularly counts as. Um, pretty frequently around 15 or 16. Okay. And, and how much, like, to the point of getting drunk? or Yeah, but it was, it was kind of like if your friends managed to sneak away a six-pack or something. Right, you know? it, right. But it wasn't like I was, like, I would never drink at or around school. Or be, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was just the, the, kind of the normal teenage. Rebel- yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and what about your relationships with your peers? Were they okay during that period of time? Oh, yeah. Were you at all aware of your sensitivity in any formal way at that point in life? Yeah, I think it kind of got put on hold at that point in some ways. Um, The only way I was, I always loved to read and I always did well in like English or uh, psychology classes or anything to do with Uh nature. So that was a part of me that wasn't, was outside of the peer group. And what about your ability to write? Yeah, that from a very young age, that was like the one thing I got attention for. Um, it was the one thing I always did well at in school. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. So it's always been a part of your life for as far back as you can remember. Yeah. Enjoy it is always, I still don't enjoy it. I don't, I don't think anyone who really enjoys it is actually a writer. That's not. Okay. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you don't do it and you're not good at it. <laughs> kind of something you have to do yeah so how did it how did being um being good at writing determine your career like when did that become some of a more formal part of your uh, of your life so that's when in college is kind of when the sensitivity came back to bite me i was in a i took a i was an english major and took a poetry class and it was pretty darwinistic you only got your poems talked about if your peers thought they were interesting enough to bring up so it wasn't reading other people's poetry. It was, well, I mean, that was part of it, but also producing your own. Yeah. 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 It was a writing class. And so my poems would usually get brought up during discussion, but there was one time that they didn't. And I was practically in tears. And I remember walking out of the class going, Oh, I guess this is important. Oh, okay. This writing thing. Yeah. And then I had the good fortune of having a friend who went to UCLA film school for screenwriting and, we knew each other since we were kids and would exchange pieces of writing. And after I finished college, he said, why don't you come out and try screenwriting? Hmm. So that was never like a dream, but it sure seemed like something cool to give. Oh, okay. So give. is that what brought you away from Wisconsin and yeah. to California? Yeah. So I didn't come here thinking, oh, I got to make it or I'm going to be crushed. I came here thinking, I'll give that a shot. <laughs> well, maybe that was better. I think it was so much better. Not so much pressure. Yeah, there'd be too much pressure. And so um, you were how old, like 22 or 3, something yeah. like that? Yeah, And what was it like to begin a career in, in as a writer being as sensitive as you are? Oh, it was awesome. I never 
in my wildest dreams imagine you could make a living at it. Oh, okay. You know, what I'd seen in academia and, and, you know, there was no commercial writing. People taught school and wrote on the side and spent 20 years hoping to get a New Yorker story published. Okay. I didn't, I wasn't around people who were like making a living at it. So that was a real relief. And um, I had really good fortune at the beginning. When you started your uh, screenwriting career? Yeah. So that must have been a pretty exciting time in your life. Oh, yeah. Sensitivity being a part of the equation, were you aware of the fact that you were different at that time? I always felt different in the Hollywood context. I And I imagine a lot of people feel this, but you get in these rooms with fancy people and you kind of look around and you're like, I don't belong here. I'm just oh, okay. a hick from... But did you know what what was keeping you from feeling a belonging in those situations? Besides the fact that the people might have been really uh, full of themselves or that, you know? Yeah, it's just a tendency towards um, self-loathing or lack of self-worth. Or... And that was part of your life? Yeah. And did it ever become problematic, the way you felt about yourself? I think I was able to keep somewhat of a lid on it, but... I think it's it was a way, in some ways, a, a way that kept me from fully committing. Well, I'm not sure what you mean. I think if you don't, if you assume you're going to fail and collapse, there's part of you that holds yourself back saying, as a safety net, saying, oh, I don't really care about this anyway. Or I, it can even be like, oh, I'm too good for this, you know. Oh, okay. I'm just pretending to be a commercial writer. This doesn't really. Is that what you told yourself? At times, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the ways that uh, being a really sensitive person can profoundly affect you is re- in romantic relationships. Um, d- d- were you aware of sensitivity playing a role in your in your relationships with women? Only after therapy in hindsight. You know, it seems so obvious now that I was just replicating the role of trying to make unstable people feel better. So do you think that that was your template for for love? Yeah, and again, I think it was the self-protection thing, too. If you're worried about someone else's feelings all the time, you don't have to worry about your own. Oh, okay. It's a kind of escapist thing as well. Yeah. Um, and do, do, so when you look back, do you think that that was a huge part of your relationships with women? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And when you met her, how did you meet your wife? Uh, my sister introduced us. It was a blind date. And um, uh, what was what was compelling about her that you ended up getting married to her and uh, starting a family with her? Well, there was that that you know love at first sight spark of attraction uh-huh. at, at at the beginning, and um, she was completely different in that sense. She was very emotionally stable. So how did that that work? Because if, if your notion is that you're responsible for pain management. I just felt safe with her because she never flew off the handle. Oh, okay. So she, she wasn't somebody who was extremely erratic like you. Yeah, mom. yeah. So what started to go badly in that relationship? From my perspective, there was a strong current of just wanting to be rewarded for being a good boy. Okay, that makes <laughs> sense. So wanting to be accepted for who you are and wanting somebody to love you for 
for who you are. Yeah, wanting a pat on the head for like being, you know, kind and loyal and faithful and all those, all those things. Well, and I'm assuming you got that in the beginning. Yes. I mean, enough so that you were willing to, uh, you know, make a commitment to her. Right. So is, is there a way to describe where things sort of went badly for you? I think I just never really felt that. I think, you know, I, there was a, it's like keeping loading money into a gumball machine and never feeling you got the gumball. So it was pretty unrealistic expectations of how relationships work. Oh, okay. And so how did you cope with the disappointment or the, the feelings of loneliness that came into the picture? Well, I was pretty accustomed to living with those feelings too, so that didn't seem very strange. And there were kids and a lot of distractions right in front of my face to keep me from... Um, and I was in therapy, so I used that as an escape valve to a certain degree. And then drinking, but the drinking was so, uh, a machine that was so in motion even before I met my wife, it's hard for me to completely say that, that it was a cause and effect situation. There. So your relationship to alcohol became... I was drinking more and more. And was there a point where, where you started to worry about your alcohol consumption? Yeah, very much so. I, I just felt like it was, um, you know, it's a snowball rolling downhill, and I, I knew where that was going to land. So that what did you do? I quit seven years ago. So you just stopped suddenly? Yeah. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. That's not an easy thing, actually, for a person to do. Proud of that one. Yeah. <laughs> did you get some support for that, or did you just do it on your own? I didn't get specific support, but I would... I read a lot of quit lit, they call it, and there was a lot of... There's a lot of good stuff in AA. I didn't, I didn't do the program, but I sort of did the study at home version and tried oh. to take what was good from AA. Okay. Um, what, what stopped you from actually participating in the program? I've never been a joiner. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that, that makes sense because, again, that is actually a part of being a really sensitive person is a discomfort in being around lots of people. Yeah, but there's, it's, there's some brilliant things there in AA. Um, so I really appreciate it. And I think, you know, there's different levels of addiction. I think mine perhaps wasn't quite as acute as some people oh, who, need, okay. who need daily support. Okay. So um, the And I did it right when I divorced. Oh, okay. So the relationship did come to an end then at some point. Yeah. And I wish I'd gotten more support for the divorce than I had for the alcohol. Why do you say that? I think the, the divorce was harder and more psychologically difficult to bear than the quitting alcohol. And um, what was it about getting a divorce that was particularly painful for you? I, it was just not on my map of how life went. People stayed together where I grew up. You know? Oh, okay. I had a married person snobbery of like, oh, that just happens to other people. Oh, okay. You know that. <laughs> So is the disease that takes place more in California than anywhere else? Huh? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's everywhere now. But in the in the small town I grew up in, it was pretty. There there are a couple divorced people looking back, but it was certainly the exception, not the yeah. 
not common. So when did the concepts of sensitivity become a conscious thing that uh, was part of who you are? Gosh, only recently have I started thinking about owning that. Just have not wanted to own that in any way. And the label sensitive person, honestly, just very, very recently. You don't like that that notion? Oh, it just comes with so much baggage right now. But it, it, it's... It's in it's in the it's in the water and I don't know I just, I saw a Gabor Mate thing on YouTube about it and so they found genes for sensitive people yeah uh-huh so apparently 30% of the population carries the sensitive people gene I think yeah it's interesting uh, different parts of your brain actually light up in the in the uh, when they do brain scans in the f- in the face of uh, any kind of stimulation it's a whole different part of your brain that responds than for somebody who has an average sensitivity, which is pretty remarkable to think about that, um, that your brain is going to take in stimulation in a, in a different part than most other people's. So it's no wonder that, um, you know, that you've always felt a little bit different because truth is you are from a purely physiological standpoint. But not that different. That's like one third of the population. You know, I I don't uh, I'm not 100 percent convinced that it's that high. Um, I think it's more like 10, maybe 10 percent, at least at that 95th percentile where where it's true, really deep sensitivity. Does this mean everyone's going to get on the plane with therapy cats now? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, it's like anything that can provide you. And I, this is going to be sound terrible. It's anything that can provide you an excuse not to be responsible for yourself. <laughs> I think that, and I, I'm sorry, I know that's rather cynical, but I think that as people we hold on or find things that can sometimes be used as an excuse rather than uh, and understand that the more sensitive you are, the more responsible that you need to be toward yourself in order to be okay. It's not an excuse for bad behavior, it's actually a reason to, to um, treat yourself differently than you would otherwise. Because um, what I've found is that um, if you try to live a life of, nor- in quotes, normalcy when you're really sensitive, you suffer inordinately more than somebody who can just kind of eat what they want and not take care of their sleep hygiene and um, not exercise very much or any of those sorts of things because um, the people that don't honor their sensitivity and don't, in quotes, live a uh, high-maintenance life are the ones that usually end up suffering really terribly. And oftentimes, like with, I mean, if you want to use uh, musicians as an example, you know, people that are uh, famous in the world of, of, of music, how common is it for people to end up in rehab? Right. And I think that part of that is because um, to get to that level, you have to have a really different way of, experiencing reality at least musically and um i think it can it can be you know it can be really overwhelming to your nervous system to go up in front of an audience and put on a performance that everybody loves and i'm sure while you're doing it it feels wonderful but i think afterwards the level of depletion and uh, exhaustion is enormous and so if you don't in quotes treat yourself like a prima donna then you're going to end up turning to drugs and alcohol as a way of coping with the um, uh, with what's happening to your nervous system. Because the people that I've met that uh, that are sort of made fun of for uh, only eating certain colored M and M's and all, you know, as an uh-huh. example and that sort yeah. of thing, 
the more particular a person is who comes from that world in terms of how they live, having their own chef, their own masseuse, their own, you know, they take care of themselves like exceedingly well in a way that we would look at and think it's overly indulgent. Those are the people that usually live the longest and have the, the longest career that's really successful because they realize that if they don't take really good care of themselves, they're going to go down for sure. And I know that's a rather extreme example because not everybody that sensitive is famous in that way. But um, most of the people that I meet that don't really understand what it means to be really sensitive have suffered really a great deal of trying to normalize themselves. It's like, it's not like dumbing yourself down, but it's like trying to live in a way that helps you feel more connected to the world around you. Mm -hmm. But because physiologically you're not, it, it doesn't work. It's like, you know, trying to change the color of your eyes. I can say, good luck with that. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So the, the idea is to recognize that you can't take yourself for granted when you're a really sensitive person. And the more you do that, the more you suffer. I don't know if that makes sense to think about it from that perspective. It does. I just haven't found... I mean... Alcohol is so great for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why so many, you know, people that are, you know, inordinately sensitive find uh, a strong attraction to substances because it it takes the feeling of anxiety and separation and loneliness and kind of dulls it. Yeah, you don't have, well, or being overly connected to everyone's chi. Yeah, which is the other side of the coin that we should talk about, which is if you don't, develop a really strong relationship to other people's pain, then there's actually something wrong with you if you're a really sensitive person because the most natural thing is to notice that the people around you are not paying attention to things they need to. And that can make you feel really anxious because um, you're feeling, you're feeling it exquisitely and they're acting, you know, the room's on fire and they're acting like it's a little bit warm in the room. And you're screaming, what, what, are you, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? This place is on fire. And they're saying, oh, you make such a big deal about nothing. Why, you know, but you can feel the heat and the, um, and the pain. And it can, it can be really confusing and really shaming because a lot of times uh, the people around you do not want to be seen and they don't really want to take responsibility for what it is you're seeing. Yeah. So the most effective way to do that is to shame you and shut you down. Yeah. But I've never met a person that's really highly sensitive that doesn't begin their romantic life by rescuing the people that they get involved with. Right. Because it becomes such a template for love from very early on. Yeah, it's like this poor thing had such a terrible father. What she needs is a good man in her life and then everything will be okay. Yeah. And so there's this fantasy that I'm going to save you and then you'll love me from now until the end of time. Right, and then both people get screwed because that doesn't work. Yeah, because it doesn't work. Because you, can, you, no matter how hard you try, you can't save somebody from themselves. Right. And so you end up feeling like a failure. And the other person often feels like you're trying to control them because um, right. um, you know, they, don't, they don't want to be told what to do or how to do it. Yeah, it's like, I didn't ask for an ibuprofen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Put that away. <laughs> so it, it, it's really difficult because if, if you're not being a pain manager, what do you bring in the name of love? Yeah, you can't imagine that they actually just like you. Yeah. For who you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's very confusing and really scary and sad because, man, I see this every single day. And there's so much magical thinking that goes along with uh, 
trying to rescue someone. Yeah. Because oftentimes I ask the person, well, you, you know, what were you thinking when you noticed that there were some pretty serious problems in the relationship? And what I always hear is, well, I thought he would change. I thought she would change. I was lonely. I figured this was the best that it would ever be. And it's always a magical thought that you convince yourself that what's right in front of you is not there. Right. Especially if the person that is right in front of you is in denial about what's there. Or they're looking for somebody to save them. Because there's no shortage of people that would really love somebody to save them and make their lives better. Or they're just not sensitive and they're doing fine. <laughs> well, that's true also. <laughs> right? They're just yeah. like, huh? You know, what language are you speaking? It's not, yeah. my, it's not my language. Well, and why are you making such a big deal about yeah. this? Why are you making such a spectacle of yourself? Uh-huh. It's raining out. Get over yourself. So this is something I'm assuming because you have a smile on your face that this is something you've experienced. Which part? Uh, the, the, the feeling of the need to rescue. Oh, sure. Yeah. And how hard has it been for you to step away from that uh, way of sort of approaching romantic relationships? Uh, yeah, it's really hard because it activates on a subconscious level. I mean, it comes at you in different shapes and forms, too. Uh-huh. You know, so it's an ever-shifting... Well, the good thing about being really sensitive, if you're willing to listen to what your body is telling you, is that it shouldn't take very long to figure out whether you're deceiving yourself and not in the right place. But the problem is most of us mess with our perceptions. Yeah, it's hard to know what is like a big red flag and what's like an ordinary relationship situation. Uh-huh. Well, and especially if you grew up in such a dramatic family where it seemed normal to have somebody be abusive because it was just part of the, the you know, nobody either didn't talk about it or it was happening on every na- everybody in the whole neighborhood in some way. Yeah. So it just kind of seems normal. <laughs> I'm sure it was normal to a certain extent. I mean, people come from similar backgrounds. So how hard has it been for you to sort of come to terms with the fact that fundamentally uh, you're different than most people? I think it's more of a where do you go from here situation because what's disarming is how shining a light on it doesn't make it go away. And that with age, the sensitivity almost seems more heightened. I don't know. It's, 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 you kind of long for the days when you weren't so tuned into it. (laughs) It was easier to. (laughs) And you could just have fun, Uh you know? Yeah. Yes. It's a very interesting thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the way forward is. Well, usually what I try to encourage people to do is to look for their tribe and understand that, that there's a lot of, there's more people that are built the way you are than you know. That was nice about L.A. because there were a lot of sensitive freaks running around that you could have lunch with. And stuff. Yeah, a bigger, a bigger population. More writers, basically. <laughs> more struggling artists. Because <laughs> Santa Barbara's a lot of middle-aged guys in board shorts and flip-flops getting stoned and talking about the wave. 
<laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> now I'm feeling personally. <laughs> I may not be the stone guy, but I am the guy with the <laughs> with the board shorts and the t shirt staring at the waves. You have broader I, you have broader interests. <laughs> you can talk about other topics. That's well. right, that's true. But that but that is my true identity. <laughs> like deep down inside I'm just a surfer, you know. You're in the right place. <laughs> that's right. I, I chose my location well because I have a lot of uh, brothers and sisters and we all stand there staring. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I certainly know in my own journey of being a really sensitive person how weird I felt as a as a kid. And mine affects me physically as much as it does uh, emotionally. So, you know, I just get constantly made fun of by my family and people that get to know me because, <laughs> you know, the only, the only conclusion they can come to is, man, are you weird? Oh. Cause it's true. Yeah. It's hard for me to live a normal life because, um, the way that my body and my emotional body and my physical body respond uh, to the sensitivity. But luckily I have a good sense of humor. So being made fun of, I, look at it as a sign of affection rather than taking offense. Yeah, it also makes you, you know, like I don't know if it's a product of the sensitivity or the abuse, but it makes you very an astute reader of people's energy. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's a survival mechanism right. to be able to read the room and to read the people around you because um, it's, how you, it's how you ran away from your mom by being able to read her mood and... Uh, you know, try to anticipate whether this was a day that uh, you could get your butt kicked or whether this was a, a day of relative, you know, calm before the next storm. Yeah, you become very instinctual about, uh, is, this, is this a room I should not be in? Yeah. Uh, the other th- question I have for you is, have you noticed that some people are just inherently uncomfortable around you and they don't really know you, but they can feel that your sensitivity is a threat to their privacy? On occasion, but I don't find that too much. I don't think. No. Well, that's because you don't tell well, you don't tell people you're a psychologist and they run away from you as quick as they can. <laughs> they sure you're sure a social outcast once you stop drinking, because I think you're a spy in the room. You know. Right. Well, that's true. Also, yes. As soon as you give up the normal way of, you know, social interaction, it makes other people self-conscious. Really self-conscious. People that you can feel. I have the opposite problem. They want to tell me their whole life story. Oh, okay, okay. Well, and and that is so common um, for people that are sensitive. They tell me that. I mean, in my own experience, when I was like a teenager and even older, everywhere I went, people would sit down next to me, strangers, and start telling me things, and I would think, "Why are you doing this? You don't know me. These are private things that you shouldn't be saying to me." Yeah, and the more acute someone's mental disorder is the, the they can spot you from a mile away like, <laughs> yes they're like a make a beeline towards you through a crowded mall you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right there's the vulnerable guy that's right i'm coming after him yeah you know um i do i do notice that people are either drawn or repelled there's not a whole lot of people mm. in the middle um, and I've had such weird experiences of people. Do you find are people repelled even professionally? Like they walk in the room here, even though they're seeking help. They not necessarily because okay. most people that I see are. Ref- I would say like ninety nine percent of the people that come to see me 
are referred by satisfied customers, friends, and family. Okay. And I like that because... Um, I mean, they're coming in here to be seen. Yes, and, and also the people that I work with are really remarkably fun and amazing. And I, I have that in my head as a requirement to walk in the door. That it's got, you got to be somebody who's really interested in your own development and willing to work hard. And um, and I've been really lucky because, you know, I, I won't work with somebody who I wouldn't consider if I met them in a different context, having them as a friend. So I have, I'm kind of strict about who I choose to involve myself with because I don't want to mess around. And usually people... Feel, is that because you feel most efficacious with those people? What's or that? Is it just your own professional choice or but because you also feel like you can do them the most good? Yeah, I mean, my idea of, in my little way of changing the world, is trying to help as many people as I can learn how to treat themselves with the kind of respect and love that they have always desired. And I think that that spreads out because what I see is that the more sort of the more content people become with who they are, the more they heal their trauma, different people start to come into their lives and then they can be of service in ways that they wouldn't be otherwise because they're not as preoccupied with their own pain and suffering. I don't think that's what they're teaching in schools. What's that? I don't think they're teaching that in psychology school. No, and I also <laughs> understand that I'm very much not a normal <laughs> therapist because <laughs> I don't have a cookbook. I don't diagnose people. And, you know, I'm much more interested in people experiencing what it's like to be cared for, maybe sometimes in a clean way for the first time in their lives. And I think that that can set a tone for what to look for moving forward. Right. And I like that idea. That feels good to me. Um. So, uh, and I will tell you that I would say 90% of the people that come to see me are very much sensitive people of my nature. So they just find their way here because I just feel like I have an inherent understanding of uh, what it is to be a, a, a really sensitive person. Because um, I think therapy can do the opposite. Like you think there's something wrong with you as a sensitive person. And then I think therapy can also reinforce that. Oh, Absolutely. I've seen that I mean, because a lot of people I see have been to many therapists before they find they were here and they have been pathologized for their sensitivity right? because the symptoms that you can develop as a, a really sensitive person can appear to be pathological. And I'm not saying that those symptoms are, are healthy or good, but they're coping mechanisms that are a way of, of, of sort of communicating to me what the underlying issue is. Because if you're at war with yourself, then you know, of course you're going to suffer. Right. And so, so many... Yeah, those lab- I resist the labels, I think, partly back to your self-responsibility level, you know? Like, you yeah. want to write everything off to, like, I'm a sensitive person, uh-huh. or I'm an empath, or I... Right, yeah. yes. Well, and I, you know, you again... fully relinquish control over being a yes. decent human being. That's know? the danger in things becoming popular, is that then they can become an excuse and people use them as an excuse. But uh, uh, the kind of people that come to see me are not people that are looking for an excuse. They've de- genuinely suffered. I see a lot of people that have had really deep trauma and really want yeah. to feel that sense of relief and then be of service to others as a result of that. Right. Because sensitivity, I think, is one of the key components to wanting to be of service and to help other people. 
Yes. And, but doing it in a healthy way, not taking that person's pain into your body. That's the tough thing, not being overly sensitive so you can have some yes. objectivity. And, and, and I it. can't tell you how many people I've tried to help get to a place where they can be very present to other people but not take the pain into their body. Because that can take you down and actually ruin your, ruin your life if you're, the, if you're absorbing all of that pain. And I know that from my own experience because as a little kid, I absorbed both of my parents' pain, especially my mom's. And did everything I could to try to save her from herself because she was so miserable. And I was so anxious having a mom that was barely, you know, her feet barely touched the ground because she was so anxious all the time. Mm. So I had to learn how to be present, but not to take the pain in as my responsibility. What did she do with her anxiety? I'm sorry? How did she cope with her anxiety? What was her? How did she cope? Yeah. By being a disaster. <laughs> by seeing herself as a victim in every situation. So it just came out neurotically. She was a professional victim. She could have won an Academy Award for being a victim. She was really good at it. And no matter what she ever experienced, it always got filtered into well, being a victim. there was probably some evidence to support her victimhood too, right? Well, yeah. She probably and was I, a victim on some level. Yeah. I, you know, I, I joke sometimes that... Um, the last years of her life, she was in a, a facility that was really sweet. It was like a cruise ship on land. And I had spies in place, other people I knew whose parents were there. And they would tell me how much fun my mom, you know, was having. And, uh -huh. and she was like the star of the bridge club and all that stuff. And I would go there to have dinner with her. And before she saw me, I would see how animated she was and how, uh, how much fun she was having. But as soon as she looked at me, uh, her shoulders would droop and she'd stare at the ground and and, and look like the, the end of the world was right in front of her. Mm. And she'd walk up to me and tell me, you put me in jail. And I would think to myself, <laughs> if this is jail, sign me up. <laughs> because it's pretty sweet. <laughs> but it was just the nature of the way she related My to her My mom kids. did more of the martyr thing. She did what? More of the martyr yeah. She was more of the martyr. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when my mom didn't know I was coming to visit her, uh, the drapes in her place would be open and the sun was shining <laughs> and the windows were open. <laughs> but then when I visit her and she didn't, and she knew I was coming, the drapes were closed, the lights were <laughs> off. And, and I would just think to myself, do you not realize how stupid this is and how ridiculous this is? Why can't you just enjoy your life? Why do you have to present yourself did as a Did you victim? have siblings? Yeah, yes. Did they relate? Similarly, well, sadly, my sister passed away uh, when she was fifty, and the, 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 her dying words, which is really very telling, she was actually moments away from dying, and my mom showed up uh, to, you know, sort of say goodbye, and she was out, she was dying at my brother's house, and um, she hadn't said a word for two or three days because she was really very much on her way out and we said to her you know do you want to see do you want to see mom and the last words out of her mouth that she screamed was fuck no <laughs> <laughs> and i know it's really not funny it's really actually quite sad but I, it's great it, it was it's so great telling yeah. you know she finally told the truth yeah well because my sister knew that my mother was there for sympathy and I understand, I mean, please, having a child die, I can't even imagine. Right. But to be there in her dying moments and want the attention to be on her rather than the dying right. person right. was just so telling. Yeah. But in my family, my brother was not looked at as her savior. That was me. 
my brother was a little baby that, you know, my mom could indulge in all of that. So I was really selected to be her, her, uh, you know, husband, father, brother, everybody that she never had. And so the pressure was on me. So I disconnected from that many, many years before she died. I just couldn't take it anymore. Just had to go away. I told her, I actually stopped letting her touch me physically. And I stopped telling her I loved her because I just kept everything superficial because it was too painful to feel the energy coming from her wanting me to save her and wanting me to be her, her everything. Yeah. So, you know, I can joke about all of this now, but it wasn't fun at the time. because there was a lot of pressure. And again, I'm a born psychologist, so my job is to take care of people, and she would get really mad at me when I I was not willing to do that for her. Yeah, because your father wasn't in any way doing that role, right? Well, and she wasn't willing to take responsibility for herself. That's That's the deciding factor. I'm happy to do anything to help you and take care of you if you're willing to be responsible for yourself. When I did the huge physical move coming to California. yeah. And at the time, it wasn't like, oh, I got to get, got to get away from family. Right. It right. was more like I got to get away from this tiny town where there's no opportunity. He, yeah. 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 But looking back in retrospect, it's like, isn't it kind of cliche that you put a ton of physical distance, but not emotional distance? Yeah. First? And sadly, I wish that worked. Right. You know that you could move to another part of the country and then not have the same dynamic follow you wherever you go. Well, there was a lot of good stuff in my family too that I was still very attached to. So there wasn't like, yeah, there was no like, oh, I got to cut ties with these people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know how much you love your siblings and yeah. how important they are to you. And even my parents, because that, that monstrous behavior that my mom was in the thrall of early on was not how she was in the second half of my childhood. So she was able to sort of control herself in some ways. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, there were times when she would drink too much and it would burst through again, but they became yeah. rarer and rarer. Wow. Yeah. And the com- she was beloved in the community. Everyone just thought she was the greatest thing. I bet. <laughs> well, and, and what my spies told me about my mom was how delightful she was, uh-huh. and, yeah. you know, how smart and capable. <laughs> so she saved her being a victim for, for me. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard, too, because the memories just are, don't feel completely reliable. Uh-huh. Know? Yeah. Although it's hard to, to, to doubt physical or sexual or any kind of abuse, you know? Yeah. It's... It's not something that's easily erased from our memory. So, John, if you were going to sort of say somebody listens to this podcast and realizes maybe I am one of those people who's really sensitive and I've never really been able to acknowledge it, what kind of a sort of advice would you give somebody to learn to embrace that aspect of who they are? Because, you know, thriving as a highly sensitive person is a really important thing. I think the big lesson for me is, and continually is to try to understand that not everyone thinks the way you do. Because I don't know if it's a narcissistic element that comes with it or what it is, but there's, or maybe that's just human to, since all you know is yourself, to assume that people react to and think the same way you do, but not everyone feels as deeply about everything. So how does it help you to recognize those things? It just helps you be more tolerant and 
also self-forgiving at the same time. And That's a good point, actually, the forgiveness part. Yeah. I really appreciate your willingness to come here and and talk about what your journey has been like as a sen- really sensitive guy. I mean, I know you in this way. Oh, I was going to say that it comes with a lot of benefits, too, like um, extrasensory perception, for example. <laughs> Is that the way it feels to you? Yeah, it's yeah. been hauntingly strong lately. Uh-huh. I'll think of someone randomly, and for some reason they'll pop into my life again. Yes, I do believe that that is something that comes much easier. The more sensitive you are, the more you're sort of tuned into the different levels of consciousness and and all of that that exists. And it's certainly helpful creatively, at least as a writer, for character creation. And that yes, absolutely. Well, and again, um, because your book is not published yet, the one that you wrote about uh, child abuse and all of that, I'm hoping that someday the, the world will be able to read it because I read it and thought it was really amazing. It was a really, really profound description of what a child goes through. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Being mistreated. Makes it a tough read. Well, I didn't think it was tough because that's yeah. my world. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought it was fantastic. So, again, I want to really thank you for coming here and, uh, and sharing your perspective. Thanks, Dana. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.